Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Over a year ago, when I started to develop the idea of this podcast, uh, I did so with some questions in mind. I knew that I wanted to ask how Christians could craft a deeper Christian life for a post-Christian world. And I also knew that to do that, there was going to be a lot of tensions between versions of Christianity and culture that were imperialist, versions that were sectarian, versions that were triumphalist, versions that were fearful. This idea of what is the place of the Christian in a culture? What is the place of Christ in culture? How do we interact with these things? Do they all collapse into one space? Is there a lot of room for a plural version of this? Different face, different views. How do Christians understand the place of Christ and culture. I knew I wanted to get at those kinds of questions. I knew as a society in which we were living in is becoming increasingly secular, I knew that many people were starting to ask if there even was a public square anymore. I knew that some people were starting to ask if there was really any way forward except for sort of an all-out cult- culture war. I had grown up a part of the culture wars from my upbringing, and I knew that we were headed toward uh, doubling down on some of those culture war sort of slogans. And I just thought this would be an opportunity, to, if we could do this podcast, to bring on different thinkers. In particular, uh, I was thinking of my pastor, Pastor John Hallowell, and some of the things that he and I had been wrestling through in the scripture at the church over the years with how to think these questions through. And I just thought, okay, if there's a place where we could kind of dive a little bit deeper, then we would get to as a, I don't know, an illustration in a sermon on Sunday morning, or, or is there a place where we could talk about specific historical events, authors, ideas, without having to necessarily rush through things or make a soundbite out of it or post a blog post, but could just sit down and talk through some of these big ideas that I think are having a huge impact on every single Christian, even though many of us don't necessarily think in some of these terms. I thought that would be worth doing to have an opportunity for those kinds of conversations. I say that to introduce this episode because I am privileged to sit down with Pastor John Hallowell to tackle this issue, the issue that is really at the heart of this whole venture, this From Babylon with Love, this idea of, of crafting a deeper Christian life for a post-Christian world. And so John and I are going to tackle this topic Christ and culture. And we're going to try to do it from a sort of a big picture standpoint, going to try to walk through some of the history of where things didn't work, where they seemed to kind of collapse, where uh, maybe there were real uh, kind of emergent ideas that clarified things, where maybe they got swallowed up by other movements. We're going to try to chart a course forward. And I think that this will be of incredible value for anybody who has been in and around 
Christianity, even those who are listening who are just wondering why I keep uh, trying to make this podcast talking about some of these things um, in a secular world where who who cares? Uh, anybody can practice whatever they want. Why do Christians uh, sort of keep breaking their head against the wall trying to uh, organize culture or contribute in certain ways to culture? I think this is a good place to to lay some real groundwork on how to understand and think through the question of Christ and culture. So Pastor John is here to to be our guide and to chart the way. Isn't that right, John? Uh, sure. To chart Dave. the way. <laughs> he has a torch in hand. He is ready to uh, walk us forward uh, slowly. And I know this is sort of a general audience thing, but I, I know many people have asked me to address some of these issues in particular. And we've covered a lot of things so far on the podcast, but today we finally tackle Christ and culture. So, John, where should we start this this quest, this journey through the story of Jesus and culture? I think there's two places in history that would be the good starting point. Uh, one is uh, the Old Covenant economy or nation of Israel with the instruction of uh, the Old Testament, uh, the laws of Moses, the attempt to build a community that would please God, would have God ruling over it, uh, theocracy, mm. as they would call it, and its failure. It didn't work. The people were unfaithful, and the agonizing travail of the Old Testament is well documented. Uh, frustrations of Moses, the unfaithfulness of the people, the long suffering of God and his attempt to hang with the people. And um, so having a culture that's predefined or pre-canned, as it were, that is a, a, uh, a culture that honors God and, and promotes the holy uh, was, was unsuccessful. And the reason was clear. It was the people who were unsuccessful unfaithful to it. Right. This was authorized. This was designed, structured around God and his commandments through his servant, very clearly revealed how to have this social order, this economy, as it were, um, this theocracy, this, yeah. this authorized theocracy. But your point is, and, and maybe this is something, certainly when I was growing up in the church, was not acknowledged often. Hmm. It didn't work. Uh, most of the language for me growing up in, in and out of evangelical churches was was Israel and us was the language of you know the Old Testament was sort of directly for and to us as much as anything else and we could draw on it sort of very quickly um, for inspirations for our ourselves and our place and our nation and all these other things but you want to just sort of start with the basics which is it was authorized it was given by God. And, it, and the people failed uh, yeah. to fulfill it. Yeah, so if, if we were to build a, a perfect culture again, uh, there, there's no way that we're going to have any different result. So uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about a better covenant was needed because the first covenant failed. And so that, uh, that brings us to the second uh, covenant, or the New Testament, the appearance of, of Christ in human form. And that is supposed to affect the world. It's a hinge moment historically. Uh, this is what Paul 
talked about on, on the Areopagus on Mars Hill when he visited Athens, the, the place of the golden age of Greece, the, the society that was politically balanced and culturally, aesthetically pleasing to the whole world for generations. And in that place, Paul uh, explained to the Areopagans that God's purpose was for the nations to seek after him and feel their way toward him and uh, and then he gives uh, some inspirational quotes, and he says that since we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone, but we are his offspring, and we shouldn't practice idolatry. But then in verse 30 of Acts 17, Paul says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So there's your hinge moment in history. This is the statement from heaven. He has appointed a man to, to judge the living and the dead, uh, and uh, all cultures, all nations are to turn from idolatry and they are to repent and turn to Jesus. So introduce the concept of Jesus or Christ and culture. Right. From that point forward, the relationship between Christ and culture is important. It's critical. It determines the faithfulness or faithlessness of a nation and its culture. So the best way to talk about it is first in general uh, and you probably are aware of the work of Niebuhr in 1951, Christ and Culture. Most right. seminary students are required to read it or at least talk about it. Uh, and it, in a way, uh, it, it tried to grapple the big issues of the relationship between Christ and a culture. And Niebuhr actually had five different categories. Uh, well, he had three, but the third one was three categories within itself. And, and the first category was Christ against culture. This was a view that, uh, that uh, Christ was against every culture because as someone became a believer, they now belonged to Christ. And so they were automatically against their culture because they had transferred the ownership of their soul. And um, it, it, uh, it resolutely means that you cannot participate in culture in any meaningful way. Uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, was uh, famous for this viewpoint mm. of how Christ related to culture. Tertullian was against boxing, for example. Mm. He felt like, here's man trying to pummel the image of another man by punching him in the face. And mm. sure, uh, surely indication that culture was, mm. was an abomination to God everywhere. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. How could these oil and water, kingdoms of darkness versus the kingdom of light? Yes. Right. Okay. You've been transferred. It's time to fight, fight off the temptations of culture. Yes. To get to get your soul back. And and so Christians became uh, sort of a third race. That was actually Tertullian's quote, uh, called to be separate. So the second viewpoint is is the relationship between Christ and culture is expressed in the phrase Christ of culture, hmm. and uh, and and this is. Um, this is the view that out of a culture, you should be able to find Christ. Um, you maintain community with, with all believers. 
and then in within a culture which tries to fulfill its best and highest aspirations and hopes within that society then Christ will emerge out of that culture and um, you have people like Immanuel Kant and Thomas Jefferson John Locke uh, they they believed this firmly and they fought for this in their political views and in their ways of expressing um, uh, their their political power that that you could build a culture where Christ would emerge and and our best aspirations were in Christ um, then the third category which is actually three cate- categories in and of itself is Christ above culture so there are three forms of this this has been the majority of the position uh, Niebuhr claimed for the history of Christianity, mm. that <clears throat> the radical nature of sin in the human race uh, meant that Christ is, is now come into the world to do away with sin, and, the, and he has brought grace into this life, full of grace, overflowing, and that uh, that, that will prevail over any culture. And, and so... Um, so there are three forms of this. First of all, there's, there's what, what's called synthesists. And they are people who have a both-and solution, that uh, there's both Christ and culture side-by-side. Uh, side. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was famously uh, uh, seeking to create a synthesis between Christ and culture. Mm. So you have natural laws and you have divine laws, and they go side by side. You have philosophy and theology. They don't overlap, but they're complementary right. views. Uh, Aristotle plus plus our, our language, our tradition. Virtue, epistemology, virtue ethics, harmoniously being brought together with Galatians or something, right? Some kind of some kind of synthesis between those sort of strands yeah. of philosophy and theology. So in Aquinas's words, this type of Christianity, it's, it's accepted full responsibility for all of the institutions of society. Mm. And, uh, and so those institutions then are go- working side by side with the work of God. You can see the work of God through the institutions, and the work of God can be seen in the institutions, and they're kind of both and. So the, uh, the second category of the Christ above culture are the dualists, and they see Christ and culture in a paradox, that there's not a line between Christians and secular, but that the righteousness of God and the righteousness of self and sin in us, that that, that line gets crossed. So if, if you belong to Christ, you're in the culture, but you don't cross the line in sin, and your righteousness is found in God, but there's no righteousness in culture. There's okay. nothing you can do in this culture that has any bearing on your relationship to God. There's no works of obedience that, mm. that bless all humankind, because there is, no, there is no being a part of this culture. There's a dualism of there's God and there's culture. How is that different from Christ against culture? Because it, it's, it, this is Christ above culture, that, okay. that Christ is above culture and that your righteousness is found in Christ, but, but you're, not to, you're not to participate in culture. Or in uh, warring against it? Or in warring against it's it. Just, it's, it's just neutral useless. at best. It, you, it has nothing. You, it's inert. Yeah, it, you pass. It's judged. Okay. It's it's discarded. Okay. okay. It's value. It's not keeping you up at night because it just doesn't matter that much. That's right. right. And 
And so you're going to corrupt your, you know, you can't even reason in culture. You can't accept culture's reason or anything because mm. it's totally fallen and corrupted. Okay. So you're not battling it, but you're, you're, um, you're claiming victory over it. And then the third, the third one, which we all will probably recognize because it is uh, probably the closest to anything we've ever uh, espoused, are the conversionists. Hmm. This is Christ above culture, but they believe that, uh, but but they believe that uh, there is conversion to be had within culture, that Christ is Lord, and there is a relationship between Christ and culture in that. If, if the culture is done right, you will find people coming to Christ because they'll be converted to his goodness. They will see him in the culture. Augustine had a separation between the city of God and the city of man, but he believed that the city of God was, was, was so powerful and so good that the people in the city of man would see that and want to be part of the right. city of God. Right. There was a conversion type. Missional, evangelistic presence, yeah. something like this. Uh, Calvin uh, believed in the conversionist version of Wesley, John Wesley. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, according to Niebuhr, that the Gospel of John was the strongest spelling out of this conversionist philosophy, that that um, that every for every person in Christ that if if they would uh, fulfill their destiny in Christ if they would follow him and become all that they could be that ultimately con- cultural culture could be converted okay uh, the the prayer of John 17 we're all one hmm. he, he, and we all bring glory to God by a total conversion of the culture so so that's two things though isn't it one where uh, the hope is that sort of Christians side by side or city of God, city of man overlapping, we have a role to bring the gospel, to try to seek converts. But you're saying it's further than just sort of pulling people out of the culture to save them. Yes. It's to ultimately have so many Christians seated in that culture through conversion, the culture itself becomes converted. Yes, and th- and this was actually the uh, view of, of someone like a Carl Henry, mm. Uh, in in trying to reestablish or trying to salvage fundamentalism uh, into modern fundamentalism in the late 50s, that not only was the individual capable of being redeemed, but that that society could be redeemed. Society could come to a place where it was actually fulfilling uh, God's plan and and, uh, work hand in hand with God's will as people would would carry out works of obedience to Christ. Levels of institutions, everything, in yeah. anywhere. Yeah, but but Henry cautioned. Okay. There was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of issues. Idiot. Okay, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and he cautioned. You know, at that time, the social reforms of of uh, the social gospel mm-hmm. were widely denounced by fundamentalists. They were just like these people have left Christ. They they want to change our society, but only for humanism. Okay, right. The social gospel, just sorry, really quickly, social gospel is... The social gospel is we need to reform the wrongs of society so that human life is better. And and why is that bad? <laughs> or why was well, that bad? The, I mean, was, on its face. Well, it was like, rejected great. by the fundamentalists because it didn't bring glory to God. It was a human project. Okay. And, and, and actually, uh, this is kind of an aside, but... Sure. Uh, the the you know the Methodist movement the indigenous American movement started by uh, Wesley in Europe 
uh, Methodism actually became totally sold over to the social gospel at the end of the 19th century. Mm. It became an institution that wanted to reform all of America and make America um, uh, righteous and, and, and not, exploit the, um, uh, not exploit any class of people. So what, what Henry claimed was that when the fundamentalists rejected the social gospel— that society ought to be redeemed. When they rejected that, they made a, a serious mistake that they were right in trying to honor Christ, but they were wrong in trying to overcome the ills of society. Hmm. They were wrong in thinking that you could just you could just denounce this as a as humanism and and yet let it go on and and let there be uh, such poverty, let there be such racial injustice. And, and so, so Henry argued that uh, we, need, we need to have an approach where we really seek to walk with Christ in a way that we won't reject the poor. We won't turn our nose up at the poor and say, oh, the poor, well, that's just a social gospel to try and help the poor, mm. but that God was working through this Christ above culture and this conversionist type of culture God was working to see that that there was true justice and that there there could be uh, a relief for man's problems and man's hurts. So um, so Niebuhr's system of categorizing Christ and culture, the relationship between Christ and culture, was was very effective. It was very commonly um, uh, held for for decades and decades. But, it, but it's a description of a variety of positions, right? Yes. So was he advocating for that last, or was he coming down on a particularly, uh, strongly on a particular vantage point of one of those uh, five? Uh, no, but if you, want to, if, if you want to do some background reading for any of our <laughs> listeners <laughs> are interested yeah, yeah, in yeah. background reading, there's an interesting uh, uh, little monograph published by Jay Budzazewski, so you might rem- you oh, might I remember that, that name, the yeah. ethicist who wrote sure. uh, "What We Can't Not Know." Great book. Uh, yeah, so he wrote a book called "Evangelicals in the Public Square," two thousand six, and he uh, he explored the thinking of four uh, evangelicals who had who had ventured into the public realm. Carl Henry was one of them. Another of my favorites, Abraham Kuyper, was in there. Francis Schaeffer was in there, and, and uh, John Howard Yoder. Hmm. And, uh, and, and he goes at length in, in uh, Carl Henry's attempt to, um, uh, to uh, call back into um, um, biblical Christianity the attempt to uh, uh, right the social wrongs that were present without having a social gospel, but, but just purely on the grounds of Christ's um, uh, teachings to look for for things in society that uh, that needed to be redeemed. And uh, so anyway, that's that's just an aside for that. But so what happens with Christ and culture is is that uh, these forces are at play in the last half of the 20th century and they are powerful forces. So uh, in in 2008, uh, D.A. Carson wrote a work to try and revise Niebuhr's Christ and culture. It's called Christ and Culture Revisited. Mm. And what Carson found and wrote about were these four forces 
that he felt were now pushing everybody around. Uh, it wasn't a matter that you could just generally decide, oh, I want to see this and I want to see that and this makes sense to me in culture and this, this is where I want to be. But there were these tremendously uh, powerful forces pushing everybody around and one of them was the lure of secularization, he called it. Um, the idea that, um, that there is a need for a secular place in, in, in society, and there surely is a need for a secular place in society. Uh, this is the case that I would want to make with you yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, one of the problems in, in American history, early American history before the Great Awakening was that the second generation of believers after the Puritans and the Congregationalists, uh, the second generation didn't believe at first in right. general. And so here you have this uh, culture that's, that's a religious, basically, a religious culture, but it has no room for unbelievers. They've mm. got to be destroyed, basically, if you're going to reenact the covenant, the right. old covenant, right. you know. Um, and and uh, so they realized there was a problem. They started doing shady little things, you know. They they did these uh, substitute baptisms and rebaptisms <laughs> and things like, well, we're reserving a place for our children when they do come around, right. you know. Uh, but that didn't that wasn't going real well. And then you had the the total breakdown of justice in the uh, late 17th century with with the Salem witch trials, and and it's and it scared the uh, it scared the leaders of the church. I mean, they mm. they realized, wow, we had a blind spot. We can't even we don't even know what justice is. We we think we're applying justice, and we're like listening to some crazy prophecy somewhere, thinking that so and so is a demonic witch and mm. needs to be put to death, and we don't have any means of protecting ourselves from that, and. And so the turmoil of that and, and the, the, the great awakening, the great awakening on Whitfield explained by Jonathan Edwards and, and widespread from the three areas of, of the East Coast of Christianity, um, it, it convinced them that there needed to be a place where God's, God's ruled over nature and over this order was there, but there was enough space to live there without the demonic everywhere, without the fear of paganism, without mm. the fear of, of um, you know, of, of just this spiritual battle everywhere. There needed to be a secular space, and from within that space we could begin genuine scientific uh, exploration. And so, so this is what I experience growing up in secular America, mm. a place that was safe enough to where not everything was a spiritual battle of heaven and hell, where I wasn't mocking anybody's belief by goofing off in the neighborhood or whatever and hanging with my buddies who were smoking cigarettes at age 14 or whatever. Um, uh, you know, we were just uh, exploring life and then educationally, uh, I could I could learn what was in the world. I could read books. I could watch television. I could be exposed to the reality and the truth and reality. But it was secular. It wasn't. I didn't have to believe in God to to participate in this. My mind could grow. My mind could expand. 
And, uh, you know, I maybe moan this sometimes and wish I had been catechized and learned to uh, pray in Jesus at three years old. But then in raising children, I realized you can't parent by, domin- by dominating thought. I mean, you, mm. you, a child needs to, they need to learn, they need to explore, they need to open their mind, needs to be expanded. And there are neutral things that there's a great benefit of, of learning and growing in. So uh, this was written about, by the way, in uh, Peter Berger's Sacred Canopy, uh, 1969, and Carson quotes that in his, in his book. But there needed to be this secular space, and, and those who formed our country recognized the importance of this. And what they insisted upon is that uh, we were going to have a secular uh, space, and in that space there would be the rule of law, and the rule of law would be impinging upon kings and priests as they as they viewed it. Mm-hmm. That there would not be a, a a person who was a regal king above this law. It would reduce uh, a king to a political leader, subject to law, and there wouldn't be priests who would say we're above the law. By agreement, they set up our our country specifically to protect this secular space, so that uh, there could be a space where a generation could grow up and come to believe. And, and, and you might recognize the conversionist tendency in this type of sure. arrangement. Sure. Um, and, okay, so... But you're co- saying, uh, crucially, that the experiences before um, the development of this sort of nation, constitution, those experiences before were of that sort of collapsed togetherness of civic and ecclesial authority yes. that led to... Uh, not a, just a casual blind spot, but to the death of people yes. um, uh, falsely yeah. on sensational and spiritualized charges. That you're saying that this this was this tragedy um, really laid down for certain uh, generation of leaders um, a mark that by the time things start to get organized as this new republic, this new independent uh, country, mm-hmm. um, there is this in their recent memory to guard against, coupled with uh, the experience, the the near generational experience of just having kids that don't walk with Jesus yes. as much as I did, yes. and, and, and having a place for my son or daughter in the society we're establishing, uh, knowing the general pattern of sort of the dilution or weakness of belief from one generation to the next, um, that there was a lot of, of uh, tragic but experiential wisdom that was going into those protections to develop a secular space. And let me expand that, because not only was that true with respect to Christ and knowing God, but the politicians of the day were more savvy than we can imagine. Uh, Budzizewski makes this point in uh, his chapter on uh, Abraham Kuyper that there haven't been a lot of really skilled Christian politicians. I'm sorry to say that. And if, you know, (laughs) yeah, okay. But, But in the time of the formation of America, they were extremely proficient politically. They had seen what happened in France. They knew tyranny. They knew the worst abuses of government. They saw what they were. 
And so they wanted to bring that experience into setting up a secular space that could not be easily taken over by those abuses. The abuse of power could not topple them politically. So, so you, you have that brought together. In, and, and, and then the, the other element that I would add is they were so heavily invested. I mean, they literally fought risk their lives uh, to break free of what was going on in England, uh, break free to determine their own destiny. They were so heavily invested that they did it. They did it with the utmost of conviction of spirit. And, and, uh, and, and so the idea of a secular space is not an accommodation to unrighteousness. Mm. It is a planned, uh, it is a planned place, a safe place where, uh, truth in this world can be uh, viewed apart from one's belief in God. Uh, and I, I, th- I, I make a big deal about this because I think the millennial problem that we have right now is that uh, millennials see the failure of integrity and in culture. They see the hypocrisy. They see the uh, they see the um, need to distrust some of this stuff, that it doesn't work together. The, the things they're being told is like, this is not right. They, they smell a rat, as the, as the phrase goes. Well, the secular space was always supposed to have a certain amount of justice, a certain amount of fairness. The laws were supposed to be uh, for everyone, no you know, justice blind and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for that is so that people could live lives, stable lives, and discover Christ. They mm. could learn their need for Christ, and, and then they would find him. He wouldn't be far away. And uh, so I think the design of, of it is good. But, okay, now Car- Carson updates the problem, and he says that what's happened is that there is the secular, but in order to have the secular, there's secularization that goes on all the time. And this is the pushing away of, of, uh, of, of the religion of the day or belief of the day, pushing it out of that secular space, right. expunging it. So secularization is saying that secular realm is not a place for certain kinds of conversations or related to religion, related to um, the good, related to God, that, that it is that those are not welcome there, that it, they suddenly are defining it by the absence of those conversations. And, and, it, pushes, and it pushes those things into the private sphere. It right. tries to get them out of the public right. arena. Believe whatever the... you want to believe, just don't bother us about it. Exactly. Right. And then, okay, so that leads to, and this is like terminology game, but hey, it's, it's important. Go. The leads to secular, secularism, the belief that we need a public square without any uh, such belief in it because those beliefs don't belong anywhere. <laughs> mm. And that we need to have uh, uh, processes and we need to have uh, positions and institutions that don't, that don't have any belief. Uh, they can't have belief in them or they're not uh, acceptable. So that's like a that's a new ideology. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a secular religion. It's it's a devoted sort of uh, not even argued for at certain points, but just assumed yeah. that it is clearly only bad for religious discourse to enter into any yeah. anything but the privacy of your heart, maybe your family members. But let's 
not maybe not even there. Um, so you went from the secular, which you know the term, the seculum. This is just ordinary time. This is just the temporal world, right? This is an old term um, for just ordinary time and space. Um, secular being a valuable place and proposition uh, in the founding of this country, in particular. And then you go to secularization, which says, uh, let's limit the terms of the discourse allowed in a public square that's secular. And then you go to a full-on belief that no institution, no shared common order should have anything religious persuading it or, or being debated or argued for. Yes, and that polarization leads to uh, two consequences. The first consequence is that the secularists begin to say that ethics are grounded in legislation and laws, that there is a liberation from, from uh, any belief system, and that that liberation uh, leads to influence, material prosperity, and what they call progress. Mm. It's human progress. Right. But, but the, 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 uh, the Christ above culture uh, concept is that that being human is only defined by God Himself. That God is the one who grounds our our ethics. That His revelation shows us right and wrong. We don't have that from within us. So there's a polarization, and then the reaction of biblical Christianity is to try and uphold the wrong thing instead <laughs> of upholding Christianity. The reaction is we try to uphold a civil religion, hmm. and the civil religion is the remnant of what was here uh, in the first uh, two, uh, first hundred years, what people perceived as our Christianity in our culture. It's not real Christianity. Right. They always say this is founded as a Christian nation, right? Yeah, Just it's like it's like one nation under God. Right. Uh, all of the all of the things that are actually the remnant of the deists right. who who didn't walk with Christ. Right. But but they had the verbiage of Christianity. Uh, you would, you know, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a scriptural equivalent. It would be like the uh, uh, the, the uh, cultural Christians, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where where they've picked up phrases about God, but um, but and so the rela- reaction of biblical Christians is to defend the right to have that deism remnant <laughs> of civil religion and what's happened to our civil religion right you know and, and really in a post-christian world we should be ready to say who cares <laughs> you mm. know i mean you know if the secular space has got a lot of pagans and a lot of idolaters in it uh you know that's better than trying to say they all need to acknowledge there's one god mm. if they're not going to come to christ right so, if they don't know or believe that um, you're saying that there was a wrong move there to try to uh, legislate or to try to use the civic uh, structures to sort of um, r- bring religiousness, sort yes. of a veneer of maybe Judeo-Christian, um, whatever we imagine that founders moment. To yeah, be. the symbols and, right. and and the basic elements. Because so much uh, blood, ink, whatever spilt over having the Ten Commandments posted somewhere, or a statue here, or some just symbolic, I mean, even like you're saying, under God, things added much later in the sort of symbolic wars 
of you know the language of the allegiance uh, the pledge and things like this or on the money right like yeah. these are not even founding father moments these are these are sort of war over symbols yes. um and you're saying it's so much sloganeering. It's not. It's not getting at the root of of why um, that reaction even happened, which is a loss of genuine knowledge and faithfulness to God. Yeah. Which which could still be our animating like uh, engagement with the world of our neighbor, right? Yes. But instead, we went to a war over slogans and symbols, and 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 tried to do. Uh, a civic religion, redo a civic religion. Yeah. And instead. we misunderstand the erosion of that civic religion as the erosion of genuine Christianity. So we think, oh my gosh, because the Ten Commandments have been lowered in this particular place, um, God has left and there and Christianity is 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 being dissolved by that. Well, even just like the battle over prayer in schools, right? Exactly. Um, nobody can possibly keep you from praying in schools, but it was presented always in the world I grew up in that prayer in schools had been taken out of schools by the secular progressive agenda, and we needed to fight to re-legislate prayer back into schools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as, as if I, that's the hill worth dying yeah. on while there's people going going <laughs> off into oblivion without knowing Christ. Right, you know? right. Um, so just a number of serious and uh, large-scale and, uh, and sort of uh, mass movement and, and resourced uh, fighting over the wrong hills, dying on the wrong hills, fighting over the wrong slogans or fighting over the surface of America's... Uh, system or belief but without actually going after the heart what would you say though to people who say you got to fight both battles you got to fight the language battle the symbol battle the civic battle uh, as well as evangelize your neighbor why can't I, we do both no i would say we don't need to do both. what why would we want to i mean the civic religion the the things that the the, the deists left you know, Thomas Jefferson cut out the resurrection narratives <laughs> in his Bible. Okay, so why do we yeah. need to, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, he made a great contribution to the political system, but, I mean, we really don't need a whole lot more of that, right. you know. Um, and and uh, we, we know our, our culture is post-Christian. I mean, we, we know it. We, we know there's facets of it we don't dare go near. Uh, the entertainment industry, for example, it's just gone without check, without influence. It's gone as far as it can go, and it goes further all the time. So, um, why do we want to? Why do we want to have a civil religion? Okay, uh, it let's let's have the culture admittedly uh, have pagan aspects to it, and let's let's call that culture to abandon that paganism. Not, not to, you know, not to erect a, a civil religion again. Almost like a th a, a, the wrong third way, yeah. right? Like you, you don't need to really uh, come to faith or understand Jesus and walk with him, become a disciple. We just want you to, to get to this place where you're sort of vaguely Judeo-Christian and agree to certain of these. Yeah, much better would be, hey, we're going to respect you as as post-Christian pagans with a right to be here, because we value that secular space so much. We value the exchange of ideas so much that we're going to exchange our idea of Jesus with you. Mm. We're going right. to we're going to we're going to share with you why we think that you would do so much better with with Christ in your soul, and 
and you share with us your paganism as to why our apples will be better if you have an uh, altar in the orchard, mm-hmm. and, and we'll listen to you. We're not going to do that. Right. But, you know, and I'm being a little bit cynical there, but to make a point, that it must be, be much better that we're all present without the veneer of a civil religion, which, mm. is, which is nobody's conviction. Right. It's just abused by politicians and those who want to go up in a, a ivory tower and ring a bell and say, "I want your votes." So mm-hmm. here's, I'm going to promote the civil religion and and. So you're saying better to have it all laid bare. What people actually think is true about life, what actually, even if it's unbelievably uh, different, right, uh, in a pluralist society, if that pluralism becomes more and more sharpened or more and more exposed or obvious. Um, you're just saying that just means we're we're less layers of of falseness yes. away from each other. That we're actually more sort of we're closer to what we are to each other in the public square, uh, even or especially if there's just this kind of complete radical disagreement. Yes. Um, uh, Niebuhr said that the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a fallen world. And, uh, and, and it's the hard work of living in, in the uh, arrangement that we live in with the secular um, society and a public square. It's, it's hard to live a life that's dedicated to Christ and committed to Christ above all else. It's hard to do that. Uh, it's much easier to say, well, let's invade the halls of power and get a bunch of judges appointed. Let's uh, let's tilt the scales of justice over here so it starts going our way for a while. Mm. That's the easy way out. The hard way out is to say, if we walk with Christ and we have the light of the world in us and that men will be drawn to him, because Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself— uh, and that's the hard work that we don't want to do, that we have to do. We have to get back to doing that. We have to get back to living our life for Christ and, and respecting the fact that in order to have a, a secular society, there's cost to it. There's, there's people that'll, that'll carry it so far that it's disgusting. So you're, you're saying you're not, you're not being naive about the argument that people would say, your your vision or the once upon a time vision of what the secular is is great, but that's not what it is anymore. That all of this civic space has been devoted to this new false religion, secularism. And so, John, all we're trying to do is rebalance an already completely titanically sinking ship uh, where all of these civic areas are just given over to this false faith of secularism. Like, why why not fight back for some of that ground? It's not neutral anyway, even if it should be. Um, it's been evangelized by this other view of of a of a, a godless, at best, a humanist um, vision of progress that wants nothing to do with God. Um, don't we need to fight back a little bit, even to just make it even again? Well, that's that's the uh, there is a case for that. It was made by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer said, look, they're, uh, they're running circles around you and tromping you into the ground. You better stand up for yourselves, right. Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he, you know, he made a pretty strong case for that. Um, the, the, um, the, the problem with, uh, with trying to stand up for yourself uh, is, is maybe seen in the, in the two or the three other 
um, problems that Carson pointed out in his 2008 work. Uh, one of them was, was, is the worship of freedom, and, and another one is the, mis the mystique of, of uh, democracy. Uh, that, um, you know, we were warned of demagogues all the way back in Plato's writings. You know, somebody can stir up people and get them in the moment wanting something. So if you want to fight, it stirs up in people the, the will to fight. And you, in order to have a fight, you need leaders. <laughs> you need leaders committed to the right thing. And that's, what, that's where I would say, uh, be careful what fights you join today, because right. you're going to have leaders that are not really uh, transparent in their agendas. And, and, uh, and I'll just leave that there. But, but the last factor, which is really critical, uh, that Carson pointed out, is the lust for power. That every form of power, Carson wrote, could, can be abused, and it reflects our desire to control others. So if, we're, if we are going to have a commitment to a society that has a secular space, that respects others, that pushes back when secularism tries to take over that secular space, we're going to have to do it in a, in a particular way. We're going to have to do it with some, some calculation and some understanding, or we're going to fall into the trap. So... Okay, so here's, there are ways in which we can't respond as, as biblical Christians, as those that follow Christ. Uh, we, we can't become angry and fearful. We can't be afraid of that secular space. We can't be afraid of what's going to happen. Um, if we're afraid of what's going to happen, we, we, uh, we're prone to assimilate or, or compromise if we're afraid of the things that are happening. And that's where Pushback can be good. Um, does, we, that, does that extend to a fear for our neighbor in the sense that, oh my gosh, if things continue this way, you know, all the all the all the kids in the world are going to be confused about who they are, and they're gonna and they're gonna get swept away in nihilism or yeah. or, or something, you know, like that. I'm not like afraid that I'm going to lose my way with Jesus, but I'm afraid for just general society just being plunged into delusion and despair. Yeah, um, you're saying it's still a root of fear. Yeah, it's a root of fear, shouldn't... and we get exploited by that fear. Right, especially when it feels uh, benevolent and maybe not centered yeah. on myself, but on like the neighborhood kids who are going to be affected at the public school by yeah. these kinds of teachers. This whatever. is how our Faustian bargains are made. Right. I'll keep you I'll keep this from happening. You just sell your soul to it to me. Yeah. So so make a huge deal over like b genders and bathrooms or something and we think we're defending or fighting for some some whatever good for common people in our area and it ends up being sort of the 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 place where we just start to compromise for the sake of that fear, we ultimately uh, a taproot of fear. There. Yeah, we get angry, and then and then somebody comes anger. along and goes, "I'll, anger, I'll help right. you with that fear." Right. You know, I'll uh, I'll channel I'll, that I'll take anger. Care of that. Well, well, another reaction that we can't have is to withdraw. Um, we we can't um, we can't have a holy huddle. You know, let them all go to hell, John, <laughs> in a hand basket. <laughs> if that's the hand basket yeah. they want to go to hell in. So I mean, you're saying, no, this is not a biblical Christian view, even if it looks incredibly despairing. 
that that withdrawing is is maybe the highest form of betrayal or narcissism. Yeah, yeah, it it, it really is. I mean, there's there's something to be said for the reality of being exposed to the way life really is. Mm. You know, there's something to be uh, said for for uh, having some feedback into what real life is about. You know, and um, you know, so so withdrawing is is not going to not going to help us. But the one that the one that we see a lot is uh, getting angry against our culture. Okay, this is abandoning the Christ over culture position. If we're angry at our our culture, we we gather in churches and we preach at our culture. Mm. We we <laughs> we get angry uh, at our culture, but then we go to a Bible study and we yell at our culture. Okay, right. there's there's nothing there's nothing in that that's of any value to our to anything to right. our position. Our culture is just what people, <laughs> right? <laughs> like what are we what are we yelling about the the atmosphere yeah. of trends or something like this? So. Uh, you know, a healthy way to look at our culture and, and our secular society is to is to understand your your true role, to understand your safety in Christ, your your place in Christ, and 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 the role of ambassador is good to think about. You know, an ambassador has uh, is, is a citizen of another land, but 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 uh, brings the presence of that. Uh, other governance to the land they are an ambassador in, and that's that's the role of of a believing uh, Christian in in uh, today's secular society is to to um, understand our identity is is hid in Christ and that our safety and security is in Christ, but that we are here in this world because God wants us here in this world at this time. Mm. And there are others here in this world that are that are like us and and we have common shared beliefs and uh, there are collectives to be found and to be had that are legitimate and what i what i mean by that again you have to be very careful here because i don't want to go and and gather with a bunch of people who are afraid that our children aren't going to be safe and have enough money to get to the end of their life uh, that's not a collective worth being a part of okay it's not a trusting collective a better collective to be a part of is people that work hard, don't get a lot of money, uh, can barely make ends meet, uh, but want to be good people. They want to be useful to others. They don't have a lot of resources. And so I go out and I find people like that around me. And I, and I realize that, hey, well, you know, in my neighborhood, if, if somebody's got a, a, a fence falls down, uh, we can join forces and put that fence back up. Uh, you know, we can obey the, the goodness that's in us. Uh, by by being a part of a collective, being a part of the real world around us, um, and then, you know, Paul on Mars Hill. We we looked at that verse earlier, but Paul seemed to uh, know the language of the poets. He seemed to be aware of the of the society and the culture around him, rather than withdrawing. Now, there's parts of our our culture that I can't venture into. Um, I can't get, I can't effectively, I can listen to a rap musician and I can't get past the, the, uh, the, the bolting profaneness of it. That's my problem, okay? I'm not going to be reaching a lot of people that are 
you know, locked on to rap music every day. And that's okay. I mean, because it's just not an area where I can be an ambassador or a diplomat. But there are people who can. There are people who see the the strong uh, profession and, and uh, the, the strong anger that's in that. Uh, they understand that. They ha- can have compassion uh, for that. They, they can thrive in that environment. Um, there's... There's a, there's a way of diplomacy for an ambassador. There's somebody that can look at somebody's way of life and appreciate a goodness of it, respect it, but have a different viewpoint. And, um, you know, in, in some way, uh, we have got to, as Christians, get back to having a presence in that public square, back to having a respectable voice. Uh, Leslie Newbegin called it a proper, a proper confidence not, not like we rule the place, but like we belong here as much as anybody else. And uh, we have done wrongs. Uh, um, you know, part of the rejection of Christianity in American culture, uh, we brought it on ourselves. Uh, and part of it was by mistake. We uh, got connected with modernism and and advances in knowledge and society. We got tied up with evidentialism, the foundationalism of the, of the 19th century. And so as, as, as our culture mechanized and, and uh, grew, we accepted uh, the growth of Christianity along with that, and we got tied up with it. And so as the 20th century went disastrous, and, you know, wars, two world wars, uh, rulers, totalitarian rulers killing millions around the world. Uh, as we were caught up with the progress of the world, we also uh, took it on the chin. You know, this world isn't so great. Look at all the evils that are here. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that there's a hesitancy to just to just be the voice. I mean, we're not going to be listened to automatically. Right. We have to gain back that respect. Right. You're saying we, you know, allying to the things that are working at any given time can potentially just continually set you up to be rejected when that thing fails generally. Yes. Like postmodernism didn't need to be post-Christianity, but we made it so. We yeah. we so joined um, with the modernist cause that the loss of one was the loss of 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 the other. So we have to be confident enough that the Christian story truly holds together. It will hold together our society. It can be rejected in the secular space, but we have to be confident enough to realize we can certainly live in our secular society by that story. We don't need anybody else's approval to do that. And we can thrive there, and we can continue to have a voice that perhaps one day we'll be called upon to use that voice. Until then, we'll uh, respectfully make our voice present. We won't withdraw from the public square. But this idea of, of trying to control through power uh, our culture, that's where we're going to get in a lot of trouble because we've, we've gotten a taste for grabbing power. And that grab for power is not Christian. It's, it's not Christ-like, uh, and it's not any more Christ-like than, than a, a parent who, who seeks to dominate and control a child's every thought and every action. Uh, we have to let children grow, 
And we have to let uh, the world around us and the culture around us be the culture around us and not try to control its behavior when it doesn't believe. It's going to be sinful. There's going to be sins all over the place because they don't know Christ. And, and so the grasping of power saying we're going we're gonna to take the—we're going to win. We're going to be—we uh, are going to dominate. We are going to be my way or the highway— um, it's not, it's not going to fly. It, it's only going to fly for a short period of time, and it's going to be rejected out of hand and will be marginalized beyond repair. Right. And the reaction is going to be proportionately Ex- strong against it. Yes. And, and, and for probably a lot longer than that taste of victory or triumphalism lasted. I think so. Because it's always the promise of triumphalism. It's very rarely even the experience of it. Yeah. It's if around the corner one more of these decisions or compromises will get us to the place where we will finally be able to have that triumphalist moment. And then even if that's accessed briefly, the reaction in general uh, to that is, and you said this in, in America, this is also the case in Ireland and many other Western European countries, the reaction against the the grasping uh, nature of the church in particular places to control a society is generations long. Body yes. count is enormous. Yeah. And it's not clear if it'll ever revive in certain areas of Western Europe or or in our future little uh, space that, that seems so big but may be uh, much less significant than we imagine it to be. You're saying those compromises for the sake of, of fleeting sort of jouissance moments of, of power and success or victory um, never pay off, always, always cost more than, than, than they seemed. Particularly now, because, because now the, the, the whole issue of going forward with, with our, uh, our, do we go forward with democracy? Do we have a republic? What are we going to have in the aftermath of our, of our polarization now? What's going to be left uh, if if we step out on the foot of grabbing power, uh, it's not going to be respected. It's not going to be accepted, and it, it's not even what we want to do. I mean, why would you want to? You know, we're in this building here, and in the front of the building, when when they first made the building, was uh, was a uh, um, uh, a homage to uh, Father Junipero Serra. Well, the, the Native Americans wouldn't occupy this building because they've got pictures in the mission of him bringing them to conversion at, at Spear Point. Right at the edge of the cliff. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. So it— Whoops. Yeah. Like, like you know, let's, let's have enough confidence in the work of the Spirit in, sec, in the secular space. Now, now, I'm not saying abandon the secular space. And right. Nobody expects us to let it have unrestrained secularism. You know, nobody's saying that. But nobody's saying don't vote. Nobody's saying don't engage in political structures or institutions. As far as it goes, it's how. Yes. How your what is your witness as you do so? Yeah. Is it marked by fear? Is it marked by anger? Is it marked by compromise? Is it marked by a lust for power? Yeah. Then that is wrong, 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 and going to cost everything. Yes. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier about knowing yourself. So much of this is about abstraction. We, whatever the we is, are fighting the culture, whatever the culture is. And we, whatever that is, is going to win, whatever that means. And yet what you were saying was to know yourself, even just as a Christian, to know your strengths, to know where you have 
uh, salt to bring, light to bring in what places you do uh, have access to your neighbor, to the places where you have skills or competency, where you see and have sympathy and connection to um, non-believing people and whatever forms of life. And I just love the way you had expressed that, that each one of us does not have the ability to do that everywhere. Um, that the the idea of carrying on as a Christian, not withdrawing and not trying to uh, uh, triumph over, but to be engaged at the level of our actual lives, actually engaged with real other people. Yes. Who, like, who do we already have a hearing with? Yes. Um, and if we were honest about that, do we have a hearing with anyone? You know, do we have a hearing at our workplace? Do we have a hearing? Where have we demonstrated the basic virtues of integrity, of, of maybe patience, of common grace, whatever language we would use, that anybody would listen to anything we have to say? Hopefully, there are places and there are forms and communities that we're connected to outside of just the church where we have potential for having a hearing, for being heard because we're trusted. And anytime you show respect and love and honor others, you are gaining your your own respect, and and we got to do that work. We can't skip that work and just say because we believe we're the ruling class. You know, right. it's like it's going to be rejected. Right. And so, it, it is is it fair to say then that what we are so that we support this conversionist view that we are here as salt and light in in this sense that we are here as a witness that that's our our role and so if we're always fighting for our group and ruining that witness we're, we're failing whatever it meant to be a witness to christ um but that to move forward especially at such a time in which um the institutional landscape is dissolving or seems practically liquid at any particular moment um there's also this tremendous opportunity yes. to surprise our neighbors by being fair, uh, by being patient, by being able to attend and hear them. You had said in a sermon some weeks, maybe months ago, and uh, <laughs> I hope it's okay if I, I uh, bring this back up, but it was really interesting to me. You said, if I'm, I think I'm going to get this right, that when you were younger, you used to think that brokenness followed from sin. And as you've gotten older and seen more of life, you've come to see that a lot of times brokenness precedes sin. Yes, yeah. it, was, it was a comment from, from you about seeing people as people uh, who are hurt, who have come from who knows what kinds of families of origin who knows what kinds of struggles and battles and things like this you've always been careful in our conversations to guard against attacking people who are vulnerable who who are maybe um, experiencing brokenness that is symptomatic of all sorts of social ills but in targeting them as the problem with the world and targeting certain kinds of sin or whatever we think um, as as this is the battleground and this is the hill, I just I remember you saying that, and I remember yeah. being struck by how your view of sin coming out of so much brokenness was a non triumphalist way. It was not a it was not 
it was not the the version I grew up with in the younger church where there really wasn't sin. It was all brokenness. And so, you know, there was no changing anybody. There was no belief that Jesus even really wanted to change anybody. This is a conversation I had with uh, Reverend Stratton uh, a little while back. Um, but that we really were just there to just say, I love you. And what that means is I, I really don't want to affect your life at mm. all. And that Jesus loves you and he really doesn't want to change you at all. I grew up with brokenness as that, as like, oh, this is just this sort of pity from a distance mm. where we just kind of agree not to bother each other, but generically affirm each other. And that's sort of what it means to be Christian as a young millennial person in the world. You were saying something different. Yeah. You were saying you were seeing real pain and real yeah. cost and the real presence of sin. But by flipping that, maybe you can explain that a little bit further of what you were articulating. Well, yeah, the uh, the idea that I'm I'm broken because I sinned was an idea that I also grew up with, uh, understanding and early in the faith that if you don't sin, you won't get broken, and the less you sin, the less brokenness there'll be in your life. I didn't realize how broken I was at the time. It just it wasn't affecting the particular path I was on, but there were many things inside of me that were broken. They resulted in me uh, 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 coming up short of the glory of God in many facets of life. So if, if I want to live a life and I want to be uh, more than just Job's friend, if I want to just, you know, wait until somebody gets sick and then just pat them on the head and go, you know, there must have been something you did, or uh, then, then I need to realize that we're, we're all part of a broken, fallen race, and there's a complexity here. There's, there's the judgment for sin is all around us. And you can step into the judgment for sin in a general way. You know, there's, there's, there's a lack of well-being all around us. That's the result of, of man's sin. And so you can't personally find fault with people for being broken. Uh, some people are broken because it's their fault. But many people are not uh, they're not broken because it's their fault. They're just broken because that's the circumstances they were grown up in. It doesn't excuse their brokenness, but it also ought to not exp- it ought to make us to where we don't expect perfection from them, and we're not surprised by sin from them, because broken people are going to sin. And uh, so, so the task is to not get fixated on or shocked by the brokenness. But to realize that there's redemption, that there's healing that Christ can bring to all of us, and and I mean, good heavens, if if this uh, if what we're talking about isn't true, then none of us would be okay. I mean, we all need the doctor that Jesus said he was. He came to heal the sick, and I have great hope in this life and the next life that his healing is underway, and that the brokenness can be undone slowly, step by step, day by day. But that, um, uh, that I need to not be so afraid of brokenness in others that I can't pray for them, I can't share with them, I can't maybe be a part of helping fix that brokenness. And, uh, and, and just sometimes that, that rush of, of anger and sinfulness that comes out of the brokenness, you just need to let that go by, kind of like a blast of radiation or whatever, and then, and then find the hum, human part, the, the God-created part that, that needs healing and needs help. 
And, uh, you know, we all, we all know that we all know that from our family, that there's times in our family where we, we, um, in the safety of family covenant, we get angry at each other, we yell at each other and, you know, and, and God help us. It doesn't go any further than that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I meant. And you picked up good on it. And, and it was kind of a personal confession that I had been, uh, uh, living a lot of my life, uh, not wanting to be broken, realized I came from a broken place, but, uh, but not understanding that, that there's a lot of brokenness in each of us and that God's working on all of that. And that the real question at the end of the day is, is, is the, the words of Jesus, you know, who was a good neighbor, mm. right? Who was this man's neighbor, right? It's, it's the person who didn't pass by. It's the person who didn't say he's not my tribe. It's the person who didn't say, well, I mean, what did he do? If he, if he got to this circumstance that he's in, you know, it must be because of whatever he's been up yeah. to or whatever. Um, but that at the end of the day, we're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that those are the two great commandments that summarize everything God wants for us as human beings. And certainly as Christians trying to bring the witness of Jesus to our culture, um, our culture is just a place full of neighbors. Yes. Yeah. And we can have common pursuits that are secular and they provide opportunities for us to, to exchange ideas and exchange lives with others. John, thank you so much for walking us through what I know is, you know, a a crash course in a topic that we could recommend a bunch of books. You mentioned a couple um, that we could recommend uh, several books to go a little bit deeper in. But I just want to leave listeners with this this idea: if you're if you're a Christian, that you have a place in your culture and you have a place to grow and develop skills and integrity and an ability to understand and relate to people of, of any background, whatever neighbors God would place us amongst, and to just resist abstracting this whole thing outside of who are our neighbors that we are called to love and and to kind of sort of take some of the the venom out of our discourse, to take some like to take some of the 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 volatility out of our our fear all all this feelings that we have i think as you said john that maybe those things will hit you like a semi truck when you read one headline or another but let it pass uh, before you react mm-hmm. uh, before you organize out of it or before you um even vote out of it mm-hmm. before you act you know make sure we are trying to act as witnesses to jesus who is not afraid of this world but came into this world translated himself into human flesh to walk amongst neighbors who were shattered by brokenness and Mm. sin to save us um not somebody else or not because we were basically already saved um but to redeem us and that obligation then just falls on us as a great privilege to to help the project of redemption for our neighbors uh john thank you for my privilege dave and thank you for listening to this episode. We are nearing the end of our first season, and we do hope that you have benefited from these conversations, and we'll be looking forward to uh, our second season in which we explore topics like this for the sake of building a deeper Christian life for a post-Christian world. Mm-hmm.
thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.